Welcome to Byline Confidential, a podcast where we talk with journalists about their lives, their work, and their careers. I'm Greg Pratt, reporter in Chicago, and I will tell you right out, I am a man who likes to talk to a man or woman who likes to talk. This week we're talking to Maya Rao, a reporter at the Minneapolis Star Tribune who recently took a fascinating trip to North Dakota where she worked at a truck stop as a cashier and reported on the oil boom. She wrote about the truck stop's owners, its employees, and the truckers who go through there in search of the good life for the Atlantic. You can check that story out online at the Atlantic's website, and I recommend you do. We had a fun chat by Lake of the Isles in Minneapolis, and I had a lot of fun talking with her about North Dakota and also her career. Maya's a great journalist, and I think you'll enjoy this week's conversation. And if you do, I hope you'll consider subscribing on iTunes for the high price of nada. But for now, enjoy the talk. So I had this idea early this year where I was thinking about, um, you know, wanting to go to North Dakota, write about the oil boom, but it's not my regular beat at the paper. I mean, at the time I was just writing about Minneapolis, um, yet I was really drawn to the story and wanted to do something more distinctive. I was just thinking about the possibility of going to work in North Dakota in the oil boom areas, um, because that that's part of the, the big story right now. People are coming in from all over the country to get work. They're coming from places where there are no jobs and they're getting jobs as truck drivers and on oil rigs. And so I went and got a job at a truck stop and just walked right in, was hired on the spot. It was very important for me in this process to be ethical so I didn't lie on my job application. I put down my newspaper experience and used my real name and everything. And uh, they're so eager for workers out there and retail jobs that they hired me right away. They didn't even ask you if you had ulterior motives? No. I think the manager barely glanced at my application. Um, I don't think it was really on their mind that some person's going to come and do a story on working here. I mean, it probably would have seemed really far-fetched to them. So the manager saw a couple of my newspaper jobs, and but didn't really ask me about them. He was more concerned with whether I knew how to run a cash register. Did you? I do. I worked at Target in the summer of 2002. So I was a cashier, making $7 an hour, and uh, this truck stop in North Dakota hired me for double that. Was it hard to figure out the logistics of getting out there? Did you just get in your car and drive? So that wasn't too hard. I did just get in my car and drive. I had a friend of a friend who, who lived out there, was an oil worker, and, um, you know, I just asked, can I crash on your couch for a month? I'm doing this project. And um, so I wanted to go just for one weekend ahead of time to set up the job. And I drove and was just really winging it, walking around all these different places, filling in applications. At the end of the day, I went to my friend's house, and his roommate was there, and we're all chatting about this idea. His roommate says, hey, well, there's actually this other truck stop that's a little bit south of here called the Wild Bison, and you should check that out. It's really nice. And um, that's I had never heard of this truck stop at all, and I just went down there the next morning, and it happened. So that, that part of it kind of fell into place. I think the trickier part with logistics happened during the whole reporting process. Um, it's very hard to be a cashier working eight hours a day and to be a reporter and make sure you're staying ethical while also 
just trying to immerse yourself in everything um, and, and kind of remember what you're seeing. You can't take notes behind the cash register. So I would leave my iPhone recorder running and I knew that if I was going to quote anybody, they'd have to know that uh, you know I'm a writer. What point do you tell them? So I had four weeks there and... By about the second week, sort of for the end of the second week, I was meeting people who I knew would be some of my characters. And so um, some of these people worked outside the trucks up. They were truck drivers. And the way I framed it is I'm a writer just coming up here. I'm just hoping to write a couple stories about the oil boom. And I would try to also get them out of the truck stop to, to interview uh, other places and, and say, is it okay if I use your name? And... Um, and I collected people's phone numbers so I could follow up with them later. Um, as for actually in the truck stop to my co-workers, by about the third week, I just started letting it leak out. Didn't want to freak anyone out. So I just, it just when the topic came up, I would say, yeah, I'm hoping to write a couple stories. I'm really interested in the topic. And nobody was really too bothered by that. I did get yelled at once, actually, by a supervisor who... Uh, you know, she's, she was mad that I was talking to one customer for a little too long and holding up the line. I mean, that would happen sometimes. I was always looking for interesting anecdotes. And I was talking to one customer. After I finished ringing him up, I continued on to the next customer. I was kind of ignoring the customers ringing up to keep talking to the other guy. And she said, that's really rude. You can't do that. And, I, I mean, I see people do that all the time when I go to the cash registers, but... You know, I, I mean, she was right. It was rude, but um, I mean, that was part of the problem. Just trying to get all the information I needed while fulfilling my cashier job. Making so. sure people get beef jerky. <laughs> Actually, one of my favorite lines in your story is 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 uh, a cashier line, which is uh, the really well placed, strategically put "what the fuck" that you have in your story, where the lady yeah. is astonished at the price of the milk. You know, you it, it's hard to use the f word in a story. Unless it really works, and in that case, I think it worked. But uh, so you work there um, for four weeks. Like, I know this is kind of a simple question, but I mean, how was it? How's the actual working? I realized being a cashier is a lot harder than you think. Um, it was it was uh, very difficult work at times. It's very tired at the end of the day, and I was really impressed by how some of the other people who had been cashiers a lot longer were actually much better at it than me. I mean, they knew how to remember all the customers' names, chit-chat with them a lot. We'd get into situations where things were always going wrong and they knew what to do and could spring into action. So I was kind of scrambling to keep up with that. It's a different kind of skill um, than I usually need to use as a reporter. But I started to get the hang of it. And after a while, it became really fun for me. Um, I'm very interested in American geography and culture, and I got this amazing experience where all day long people would come up to register for, from all different parts of the country, and I could look at their driver's license and see they were from West Virginia and ask them about that. And I felt like I was getting an education, too, in what was happening around the country, seeing like what states have bad economies that are prompting a lot of people up here. Um, so I just really enjoyed that. It was not something I could have gotten any, anywhere else. When you were doing uh, your reporting, were you surprised by how quickly you got hired? 
Well, I anticipated that I would probably be able to get hired quickly. And I knew I wanted that to be part of the story. Because I've read... I'd read about this phenomenon for a couple years. It's been in some national stories, how the retail jobs there pay uh, as much as $15, $17 an hour. And they're so desperate for employees. This turnover is so high. Everyone's dumping those jobs to go work on the oil field for something way higher. So I wanted that to be part of the story um, in a way people hadn't read about before. And like, there's no better way to do that than just go in and apply yourself. You know, as someone doesn't, I mean, I, I just listed, listed some newspaper jobs, and they were so eager for anybody that, you know, I was able to get hired right away. Did you see anything in that month that surprised you? Yeah, I saw quite a bit, actually. Um, first of all, I thought it would be a lot shadier than it actually was. I mean, you think of a truck stop... That sort of has some seedy connotations. A place along the highway, maybe some prostitutes roaming around, dangerous men. You know, and I, when I got there, I realized there were a lot of colorful characters, but I never felt like there was any real danger. The owners were really nice, honest people. It was it felt like a family-friendly environment. And, uh, I mean, a lot of the guys coming in were rough around the edges, some of them were doing illegal things, but there was not really a hint of seediness there. And that that was just something I had gone in expecting to be part of the story. Um, but, you know, the story does reference a female cashier who's very alarmed that I'm talking with all these truckers, and she warns me it's dangerous because in North Dakota there's sex trafficking. And I, she might have had a point, I just didn't feel it as strongly as I expected. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure there is sex trafficking, uh, but, yeah, there definitely is. Yeah, of course. Uh, but did you have safety concerns uh, on your way there? What do you mean on my way there? Well, before taking the job. Oh, okay. Or, or while you were there, I guess. You know, I, I just feel like as a reporter, I'm already so used to going to foreign places and occasionally get into cars with people you don't know and you're putting a lot of trust in people they're putting a lot of trust in you so I that wasn't a huge concern for me and I'd been there before um and I never felt unsafe before the one thing that makes me feel unsafe in that part of North Dakota is just um how it's really, really scary driving after dark and the sky is really black and you're driving on these roads where people don't travel it's a little eerie but I didn't get um any sense of danger from most of the time I didn't get any sense of danger from the customers I mean I did try to make sure I knew who I was dealing with before I got in a truck with them um, and this was actually a very awkward part of the reporting or my first couple weeks I knew I needed to, to find a couple truck drivers to really talk to them outside of the cash register because you only have a couple minutes at the register and of course, there's tons of trucks parked at the truck stop every night, and my shift ended at 10, so that's when the truck drivers are going to sleep. I realized it would be extremely awkward for me to leave the shift and like walk up and, and not knock on some trucker's door. My co-workers see me, and the whole thing would have looked really bad. It would have been really inappropriate. That's how rumors get started. <laughs> right. It just it just puts the makes the trucker feel weird. It makes me look weird. Um, and this was a conundrum for a while, but 
what I did was on my, we got a 30 minute break every day. And so I would always go to the trucker's lounge, which is right inside the truck stop. And there usually be a lot of truck drivers gathered there. And I listened to them talk, get to know some of them. And then, um, you know, be able to follow up later. But it, it turned out that I had to do a lot of reporting off my main hours. Um, it, just standing by the cash register wouldn't have been enough to, to get everything. Uh, one of the truck drivers you really got to know well was uh, Aerosmith, right? Yeah. He looks like Aerosmith, or he does not look like Aerosmith. <laughs> Why do they think he looks like one of the guys from Aerosmith, if he doesn't look like one of the guys from Aerosmith? I mean, he kind of does. He's just, he looks like, I don't know, he's just a white southern guy. Kind of looks like Steven Tyler, but not, I don't know, I showed this picture to a couple of friends, they didn't agree. Um... So, I'm, you know, I don't know. But, well, the more serious question, aside from his uh, resemblance to Aerosmith, is um, he's one of the guys you got to know, right? Mm-hmm. And you got to ride with. How was that? Well, with so with Aerosmith, you know, it was really funny. Um, Does he know? Yeah, that's his nickname. He knows. Right. That's his nickname. So we, I actually got to know him because I really screwed up at the cash register one day. Very long line of people and our credit card machines were barely working. So I sent him out a couple times and it wasn't credit card wasn't working it keep coming back in and then I forgot to swipe his Bison Bucks card, which is a loyalty card at the truck stop. You accumulate a certain number of points, you can redeem them in the store for free showers and other things and uh, I forgot to swipe that and you know, I was so frazzled and I could see him looking really irritated and disappointed but he's very polite he doesn't say anything and I for a couple of days after that I, I still felt bad like I you know I, I just felt bad I wasn't my customer service was not that good I was kind of overwhelmed with a lot of customers and later I saw him just a couple of days later in the back um, playing dominoes and he was just very nice very friendly and um I realized these truckers were really glad someone was taking an interest in their lives they're used to spending all their time alone their way from home and so he and some of the other guys were really interested in in sharing what it's like on the road and uh you know i mean he he's kind of a he's in his 50s he's got a teenage daughter so um you know at one point he did say you know i'm sure your parents wouldn't be happy with you (laughs) sitting in the car of some (laughs) trucker in north dakota like you know i mean most people would say that doesn't sound very safe but I, i mean he's a a harmless guy. Yeah. We, we still talk quite a bit, and he's eager to see the story. One really interesting thing is that he had confessed to some behavior that could have gotten him, gotten him in trouble. Um, I was going to ask about that. Right. So he, like a lot of other truckers there, wouldn't get a permit to um, haul up a really heavy load in his truck. I mean, there's weigh limits, and a lot of the truckers ignored them to make more money. He told me things about his employer, you know, that he was not drug tested, no one was asking much of anything, and I wanted to be aware of the fact that a lot of the people I was talking to have no media experience, they're just regular people, and they see me in my cashier outfit, and they may not understand what they're saying is going to end up in a national publication, so I really went over and over with him, even over the last couple of weeks, that is it okay to use your real name, I have your pictures in here, I just want to let you know 
don't like you may get in trouble what do you think of that and he said he's totally fine with it he doesn't think he'll get in trouble because everyone does it he said it, it's so commonplace that everyone's doing it and he just wants the story to be told so that really did surprise me well, that's that's an interesting thing, right? Is that you do have a thing, uh, a thing. Uh, you have sections where you discuss, um, where you write about how people travel and how how people travel and they ignore these limits and they ignore the laws. And uh, I think, and I thought that was very interesting as something that that's going on and that you were able to capture, and that you might not have been able to capture if you weren't there working at the at the store, you know what I mean? Yeah, I knew going in, I was very interested in writing about the stress that truckers were putting on the infrastructure. I knew there were a lot of trucks, they were tearing up the roads. I really didn't know that anybody was going over the way limits, though. I mean, I found that just because I... A couple ways. I mean, one, I just was sitting in the trucker's lounge one day, and the truckers were just talking about it. And I just heard bits and pieces that there was another trucker I rode around with who's not in the story, um... Or maybe do a separate story on. He mentioned, yeah, I used to haul illegally, everyone does it, and I gradually just put pieces of this together. And I think um, there's a harder aspect of this to get to because people don't really talk to truck drivers, they're always on the go, and um, you kind of have to be there to pick up on it. But you did, and you got to write about it and show this interesting glimpse into. Uh, how they go about doing their business. Yeah, I was I was really glad that I was able to capture a bit more of that. And I think I mean there's just been so much reporting on the Balkan, but it, it's hard it's hard to get really close to the action. I mean I've talked to other reporters about how um, you know they would have such a hard time finding just people for their stories. Everyone was in a rush. Everyone was in a hurry. No one had time to talk. They're always moving. It's really hard to just get close to what's really going on. And I, I mean, I honestly wish I could have had another month there, at least. I would have gotten a lot stronger material. Let's talk about that a little bit. So you took a month off to go report in North Dakota? Mm-hmm. That doesn't raise people's eyebrows? Like, like they're like, wow, that is, a, that is quite an interesting project. <laughs> like... Um, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, a couple people at the Star Tribune did think, you know, that that's a heck of a way to spend your vacation and everything, but, I mean, no, it wasn't like anyone tried to stop me. I mean, did your parents think you were nuts or something? <laughs> did you not tell them? I did tell them, and growing up, my parents were extremely restrictive, just terrified of me doing anything by myself um and I mentioned that in this there's a story I did a while back last year for the all about being this female traveler by myself I once just took a cross-country road trip by myself and how this whole thing started with my parents just being very restricted growing up I wanted to really see the world and um now that my parents know about a lot of the traveling I've done and they were fine with it they thought it was sort of funny I would text my mom all the time. She wanted me to check in a lot, and I would forget. I was busy working so hard. And so, uh, sure. Yeah, and I mean, I had. You know, I, I really tried not to say too much about what I was working on as well. Like, I'm, I'm going to work at a truck stop and do a story because I didn't. 
on some off chance that it didn't work out, I, I just didn't want to be too specific. I wanted to see how it would go. Well, but it's a it's an ambitious uh, project journalistically, right? Like, um, and we, we talked a little bit about starting out and going out to do it, but um, how much thought went into like did you have to work yourself up to do it to to say okay I am actually going to do it was it an easy thing to do well I I had a strong feeling that I wanted to do it but I remember three weeks before the day I had told my editors I was taking off um, I still didn't have much done and I was just lying on my couch one night wondering how is this possibly going to come together this is such a weird idea and um I just figured, you know, I'm just going to give it a shot. And so I went up, I set the whole thing up, and um, I was kind of surprised at how it came together, but I've been I've been ready to do something like this for a really long time. It didn't just happen overnight. I really wanted to do something more creative and unusual like that, and it's really hard to get to, to just tell a newspaper or magazine, hey, I just want to go up and work there and see what happens. You know, it's hard until you without characters and knowing what's going to happen. And so I really appreciated that chance to take a calculated risk. And I, I went up, did the whole thing, wrote it, and only then did I pitch it to a publication. I didn't set up anything ahead of time. I, I figured I, I figured someone would want it on the East Coast because they have a lot of interest in the oil boom. They don't necessarily send people out there all the time because it's so far away. So I figured I'm in a position to do this. And I also knew, it helped me to realize that if for some reason nothing was ever published, I knew it would be really fun for me. It would be so such a strange experience and so interesting, I, I knew I'd be fine if it didn't work out. And that's the kind of thing where a lot of uh, publications in general just don't have the resources to say, we'll go, go spend a month somewhere and if nothing comes of it, nothing... That's okay, you know, <laughs> right? Whereas before, I mean, newspapers did that all the time. You know, yeah. like people work on things for months and nothing came through and they'd be like, oh, well, you know, we did our our best. Is that something that you'd like to do more of going forward? Is like immersive type of journalism? Yeah, I do think there's a lot of value in that. And... Um one of my models for that is uh, by one of my favorite writers, Charlie LaDuff, when he was at the New York Times. He went to work in a meatpacking plant for a while in North Carolina and used that as a way to explore issues of race and all the racial divides on the meatpacking floor between blacks, whites, Mexicans, and Native Americans. Um, and it was so original. I mean, he, he didn't use the word I in there. I mean, newspapers usually don't do that, but he still was able to see so much. I do think that's something that newspapers could try more of. I mean, a, I mean a month actually isn't that long for a project. Um, your expenses are covered by the salary you're making in the job. And you can just see things that would be very hard to get to otherwise. So I, I, do, I do see some value in it, but... Um, got to pick something that you think will have a broader resonance to. Why are you so interested in the oil boom? Because this isn't the very first thing you've written about it, right? Right. Um, I've been very interested in it because it's just a great American story. 
I first read about it when I was living in Philadelphia. I had never been to North Dakota. I hadn't spent much time in the Midwest. And I thought, this is the most remote, foreign place in the country I can think of. And yet there's this swirl of activity happening. It just says so much about the American economy right now. Um, it's got a lot of different elements. There's environmental concerns. There's uh, you know stories about the way we use energy, fracking. Um, there's just a lot of fascinating stuff there. So it, it just appeals to me. I could see um, doing a book or at least doing a lot more articles on it. Now, how long have you been a journalist at this point? Eight years. You know, off the top of your head, I'm impressed. <laughs> Some people think about it. <laughs> Eight years. Yeah. And why did you get into it? Well, I always loved writing since I was a kid. I would be, you know, nine years old sitting in my room writing books, just fiction and spiral-bound notebooks. And um, I eventually came to the realization that all my creative writing was interesting to me, but it was too isolated. I mean, I liked the idea of being able to write and express things, but do it in a way that was connected to the community, being out and getting to know the world, meeting people, possibly making a difference, and still getting a chance to focus on the craft of writing. And actually, when I started journalism, I was at the Press of Atlantic City, and that and I spent my first five years, my formative years as a reporter in New Jersey, and that had a lasting impact on me. Because before I came, I thought of myself as more of a features reporter, which I still I still enjoy features very much. But um, I saw there were so many corruption stories in New Jersey, you know, all kinds of great reporting on corruption and government waste, and I got very into that for a while. And um, I just liked the idea of being able to explain things to people that they would never otherwise know. They can't figure out from going to a school board meeting or a city council meeting or going on the internet. And so I take that approach with feature writing too. I don't want to just write features to write them. I really want to tell them something they could not see or know about otherwise. Now, there's like a couple steps there, right? So you get interested in corruption in mm-hmm. New Jersey. Do you remember the story that got you interested? Or the circumstances? Well, around, remember it was around the time um, that a colleague who covered Atlantic City Hall was doing a lot of... Just a lot about um, corruption by a local political figure. and I mean, I just saw all that on the front page day after day. Um, I was a business reporter. Um, I... I was able to break a couple stories on union corruption. The painters' union in New Jersey was embezzling all kinds of money. It was really fascinating for me. And then later, I was hired at the Inquirer, um, and I was no longer a business reporter. I was just kind of a regional reporter, but I was doing more on government. And I just became really interested in requesting government records and digging into things and... Um, one story I really enjoyed working on, to this day, I think it's one of my favorite stories, was about corruption in this New Jersey small-town farmland preservation program that every other media outlet, including the New York Times, had written this glowing story about. Um, and I got a tip about a lawsuit that led me into a couple months of digging, and um, I just wrote about a lot of conflicts of interest with that, and then 
Nothing ever happened. This ran on the front page of the Inquirer. Got no reaction. Years passed, and I'm kind of upset about it. And then this summer, while working at the truck stop, a, a source texted me and said, Hey, this guy just got indicted for the same thing that you wrote about. It was the exact same thing. So I, um, it's really fascinating to see that it, it took a long time. But I, you know, I was able to just get out a different side of that issue that a lot of other people had written about, but they hadn't really looked at critically. What was he doing? Um... It was like that this mayor of a small town was, um, it's kind of complicated to explain, but it, he's, was, he had pushed these, this farmland preservation program and to this complicated thing called transfer of development rights credits, and he negotiated some deal with the developer that, I mean, made him $2 million, and he didn't disclose any of his conflicts of interest, and, um... I mean, the program had brought a lot of issues to the town. It had brought a lot of new increases in population, but it had brought some, a lot of stress on the town as well. And, and so, I mean, here's this guy pushing for this program and didn't really explain that he was profiting from it. When I asked him about it, he actually he didn't deny any of the facts I brought forward. But he just acted like there was nothing wrong. So I, now that I'm a regional reporter for the Star Tribune, doing more in rural areas, I could... I think that kind of story could possibly be going on in all kinds of small towns. I mean, I've always found that the worst corruption I've seen is in these small towns where nobody's checking records or looking at anything. Because they fly under the radar? Yeah, they, exactly. They fly under the radar. So I'm really interested in um, finding those stories that are just kind of flying under the radar. There's a lot of places around the country like that that there's just no one looking at. Did you study journalism? I did not. So you get a first job, no J school degree, just. Well, it took a lot of struggle to get there. I mean, I was an English and history major in college, and I just wasn't very plugged into kind of the steps I needed to take. Like, I wasn't on some big internship track. But after my sophomore year um, of college, I realized I needed to figure that out. And I got a job at this tiny local paper in upstate New York called the Ithaca Journal. And I was not very good. Um, and so the next summer, I was What do you mean you were not very good? Just not, I mean, it was just, uh, I don't think they thought I was good. I didn't think I was very good. And I just was kind of producing a lot of mediocre stories. I just didn't understand this transition from doing the creative writing I was doing and the strong academic writing I was doing to just becoming a reporter. And I actually made the mistake of um, not... All, all this colorful writing I'd been doing on my own time, I, I didn't really transfer it to my news articles. I thought, you don't really necessarily encourage that when you're in journalism. or They don't remind you that you could do that. Sort of on you to figure that out. And I just wasn't doing that much. And so... The next summer, I was rejected from every internship I applied to. I applied all over the country. And so I went back to the same small paper, put me on the entertainment desk. I was reviewing these small town plays. And this time, though, I, I decided I'm going to work my way out of this. And I, I put in so much effort. I, I really tried to make the writing interesting and experimented with a lot of cool things. And it was a small paper, so I'm not going to usually turn down what you write. 
and um, do that, finally, the next year, um, the Hartford Current gave me a job, like, like an internship, uh, just uh, the summer after I graduated college, and initially they rejected me, but some business editor found my resume in the trash can or something, I mean, <laughs> and the business side wanted to kind of restart their internship program. So I, you know, they, this guy said, I like your writing style. A lot of business coverage can be really boring, so we'll give you a shot. And I'll be honest, even in that internship, I struggled. Like, I, I'm not, I was not one of those people who was an early star that everybody thought was, was great. I mean, like, I know I definitely struggled with some of the, just the daily type stories, the deadline stories, trying to structure them the right way. Yeah, it was good with an, with an enterprise story, but just the some of the basics I didn't get. And so, you know, I start out of college at the Press of Atlantic City. It's a small paper, but it, it was the best place in the world you could have started. I mean, they... Um, I mean, it's just a great news town. There's a million things happening. And um, I just... I knew that I had a lot of work to do, uh, and I worked really hard and um, I just took a lot of chances with the kinds of stories I was doing and I'd work like 12 hours a day and weekends and I really wanted to move to a bigger paper quickly um, and then I you know at some point after a while the Philadelphia Inquirer is in the same coverage area and uh, one of their writers really liked some of my enterprise writing and they were looking to hire young some young reporters in the suburbs and so that helped me and I actually realized um as much as kind of later in the game I tried to go to different conferences and network and get people's business cards and all that, at the end of the day, um, I've gotten further when people just said, like, wow, I saw the story you wrote and I liked it and let's talk about a job or what you could do for us. I've got way further that way than just networking at a conference. Well, there's no substitute for writing a good story, right? versus uh, yeah. or reporting a good story like uh, we had a nice chat at a conference doesn't really compare yeah and I've, honestly I've had a lot of good stories that didn't didn't get recognized at all so it's not it's not like everything you do is going to get you noticed but I've just found that that's definitely um, you know one way in do you think of yourself as kind of a risk taker yeah because you've, uh, uh, you know, in addition to this uh, pretty gutsy trip to North Dakota to do this, I mean, um, you you did that story you alluded to earlier about just going on a road trip and writing about it, right? Right. And, like, you were getting in cars with strange people, I think, if I recall. <laughs> and Yeah. Uh, but that, that, that article that I'm referencing, that owl article, actually read, like, a lot of fun, too. Yeah. Like you had a blast. I mean, it's just a month-long road trip. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, you know, I've always been intrigued by this idea that uh, you know, men have a lot of freedom in our world to, to take on a lot of risks, and I think people question that less. You know, like they're kind of praised for having this pioneering spirit or this, this attitude where they're going to take risks, start a business, explore something, do something crazy. When women do it... Um, it's not always met with the same reaction and I, I've always wanted to believe that I didn't have 
any limits. I know women have to be careful to a greater extent. Um, and, you know, we shouldn't be reckless, but I really... I just wanted to um, see the country. I just, I just didn't want to limit myself at all. And that actually helped me um, with the story in North Dakota, just some of that reporting, because it, it is kind of scary at first to drive a really long distance by yourself. And um, when I first started doing this, I lived in Philly, and I, I was trying to drive west. And by the time I got to St. Louis, I was really freaking out. And I really had a sick feeling in my stomach, like, I need to turn around. I'm getting way too far, and I, I don't, anything could happen. This is really kind of scary. And I kept going, and I just pushed myself, and now the idea of that scaring me just seems laughable. I mean, like, it made it feel, like, very natural to go out, do everything on my own. I, I, I knew I'd be fine. So, so yeah, driving to North Dakota 10 hours away, doing all this stuff on my own. I mean, I, I had supportive friends and everything, but kind of maneuvering this on my own felt really natural to me. You know, it's it's interesting. I didn't know that you had a features background or a business background or an mm-hmm. investigative background. Well, I know you had an investigative background, but you have a lot of uh, kind of uh, um, tools in your arsenal, I guess. Mm-hmm. Or you've done, a, you've experienced a lot of different things. Is that like deliberate? Do you like think about that to try and keep your self your your you know repertoire dynamic i'm trying to fit as many buzzwords (laughs) as i can into that well at first it was just uh, something i was kind of forced to do like you know i got an internship in entertainment here then in business here then I got a job in business just because it was offered to me. Then I took a metro job because it was offered. You know, I mean, but I think it also fits in um, with the idea that I do like to be versatile and um, I like to push myself because sometimes it, I have a lot of interest in, in a lot of different things. That's why the beat structure I've kind of realized now that I've just left my 20s and have a lot more experience, I kind of realized that that not naturally a great beat reporter because I, I just have too many interests I'll get just distracted by a lot of different things um, and I, you know I also have started to realize it's just good trying to do a lot of different things to keep yourself fresh and um, I think all newspaper reporters at some point just, like kind of get stuck in a rut with their writing even if the writing is good they, they're used to just structuring a story a certain way or thinking about it a certain way but if you suddenly break out of doing covering breaking news and you just maybe you submit some freelance story to another part of the paper or to some other publication like some kind of personal essay or something on sports just something very different I think it's good for your writing and for your mind keeps you from going crazy right right I don't I don't want to get pigeonholed in anything I know that in this Environment, we are encouraged to specialize, and I really see the value in that. Um, but for me, I, I haven't found anything that I know that I want to stick to year in and year out yet. So, after all these years in journalism, uh, what are the things that you're most proud of? Hmm. I'm really proud of a lot of the work. I did, 
for my first paper in Atlantic City where yeah, they gave me a job that's kind of a job that wasn't um, a big deal at the paper, kind of a low-level business job, and I really turned it into something that um, just produced a lot of the most innovative stories at the paper. And even, you notice at the Philadelphia Inquirer, um, I was in a suburb, in, like, or in, a, in a suburban county that was kind of the least important part of their coverage area. And, you know, I still was determined to break... And then there were other competing suburban papers. And I, I was really proud that I was able to break um, some really uh, good stories there, like watchdog stories that other papers with other resources couldn't get to. So just kind of being able to defy sometimes the expectations of a job. And even in Minneapolis... Um, one of the stories I'm actually most proud of was not something that a typical City Hall reporter does, but I was out one night just with some friends who don't work for the paper, don't know much about journalism, and one of their acquaintances was mentioning something about, like, just inviting us to go to an after-hours electronic dance party somewhere in North Minneapolis. And I thought, well, that sounds fun. And then the guy mentioned, so yeah, like, got an off-duty cop who guards it so like it's no problem and then I'm completely shocked by that that sounded I mean it's an after-hours party that's you know illegal and they pay an, uh, an off-duty cop to guard it um, so I had to get up for work the next day to do something at 8 30 in the morning and it was now almost midnight and I was faced with this, this decision of what to do the, the party wasn't going to start till 2 and uh, I went out, went to the party, confronted the cop outside, did the reporting, and um, took a nap for a couple hours, and then went into work to do my other story, uh, you know, all day long, and, you know, brought it back to my editors. But um, just being able to, to be there, even though it wasn't convenient for me at all, and it was exhausting, um, and just kind of stick with it, looking for a story, kind of wherever wherever I went. So I was just really proud of that. What happened to that cop? Nothing really happened. I mean, the police looked into it, but <laughs> nothing happened. And honestly, at this point, like, I know, like, in our in our profession, I think there's, like, too much emphasis on impact journalism. Like, your worth as a journalist gets measured too much by the impact you have, or, like, if someone gets fired or jailed or everything. I mean, honestly, it's been really rare that most of my stuff had a tangible impact. But that, I mean, that was because... I mean, I did a lot of... And there's just a lot of stuff that... I mean... We'll know that it's wrong, but, I mean, if officials are only moved to call for change or fire someone if it suits them, you know, there's plenty of times they don't. I, so I try not to pursue a story just based on whether I think that it will have a measurable, measurable impact. I just try to think, well, is this important? Two people know about it and just try to forget that other stuff. It's like, you know, when I was in New Jersey, especially, I mean, people, they're, um, they're so used to corruption. I mean, I, you can report a lot of crazy stuff and nothing happens. You can't expect a, an official reaction. And even here in Minnesota, one editor who's from out of town somewhere else was mentioning a similar phenomenon here that definitely seems like 
it takes more to get a tangible reaction sometimes from people in Minnesota. That they're very much like, oh, everything's good the way it is. So I just think you got to focus on your work and forget that other stuff. Well, there's there's a certain inertia everywhere, right? Yeah. Like Like the status quo prevails everywhere. I mean, the status quo is the status quo. Uh, and I agree, you know, just because, you know someone doesn't get fired or doesn't go to jail because if somebody wrote doesn't mean it wasn't a good story or an important story you know you, even that is kind of interesting right like what's acceptable in our society to a certain point what else is going on for you so you are now a regional reporter right yeah I just made a shift a month ago um, from covering Minneapolis and City Hall and urban issues to being part of this five person regional team and it's a really exciting time to take on that role because um, we have a new owner, Lynn Taylor, and um, he's expressed a lot of interest in beefing up our statewide presence, just thinking bigger in that regard. And so, I mean, I've even heard from editors they're interested in doing more in the Dakotas, maybe even getting into Iowa, more in Wisconsin. So there's a chance to go all over a really huge area and bring back great stories that just define the region. And I recently took a trip to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Um, and I mean, our paper, I don't recall you know, ever seeing much reporting out of South Dakota. Occasionally we get it, but um, it's really cool that I, I pitched a story, hasn't yet run. It was just about um, Native American health care in South Dakota and how Natives there um, aren't seeing much change, even with the passage of the Affordable Care Act, because the state hasn't expanded Medicaid. Um, and it's just really exciting. A photographer and I went and running all over the place, talking to people. And, you know, even when we said we were from Minneapolis, it was far away, but everybody knew the Star Tribune, they knew Minneapolis. Um, they were happy we were there. So I liked that. It was actually the first time I could think of when I was paid, really paid by an organization to travel. <laughs> In the past, I've just gone for my personal projects. I'm not used to staying in a hotel and someone paying for it see once that was a funny feeling once you get that working that's when you've got it made right once you yeah. can once you can get them to pay for your travel <laughs> life is good yeah no that's really an honor and it's different though because when i going on on my own dime i can set my own standards if i want to stay an extra day or go with a kind of vague idea it's okay because it's on me and now there's a much more structured process. Um, you know, I have to, to... To go to South Dakota, I can't just do it spur of the moment. I have to, like, report out almost half the story and really have this detailed story memo and send it to the editors, and they can decide if it's worth their time. And then and I said, I'd like to stay two days, one night. And so we went, and we had to make the most of every minute because we only had this limited amount of sure. time. So if I went by myself, I mean, I'd be working hard, but... Um, I could have more flexibility to meander along. <laughs> and in this case, it was definitely like I had to be on the ball. For people who want to follow you, what's the best way to do it? I mean, people who are starting out in journalism or who are in their 20s and they're already in... Well, I mean, like, like on social media or stuff like oh. that. <laughs> like... <laughs> I've been following my footsteps. Um, I am on Twitter at mrao, M-R-A-O underscore strib s-t-r-i-b and uh but um 
beyond that, uh, do you have advice for for the people who want to literally follow in your footsteps? <laughs> uh, so, um, it's hard for me to give advice to like journalists who are just starting out because the landscape has changed so much since I graduated in 2006. Couldn't possibly begin to understand you know, the climate some of those younger journalists are facing, but if you're just talking about people who are in their mid, late 20s, early 30s who are trying to do more, um, I think it's really important to keep in mind that there's, there's a lot of big projects or opportunities um, to take advantage of if you just take that risk. And, like, one thing that's been really heartening is there's a lot of um, opportunities now to do long-form online journalism. If you write for a newspaper and you're covering your beat and doing your job, but say you want to do something that doesn't quite fit, I think in the past you would have been really limited. Um, I mean, now you've got sites like BuzzFeed that are pushing long-form, and they accept long-form journalism from freelancers. I mean, you could... If, if it's important to you... Um, if you find a story you're passionate about, you could go out on evenings and nights or on your own vacation time and do something really original and see that in print. And that could help your career, or at the very least, it could just get you um, out of any rut you have and, like, trying new things. It's good for your soul? Yeah. Yeah, but I'm just really heartened by the fact there's so much online now. You know, it's, it's frustrating sometimes... Um, get any newspaper with how everything has to be, people are more length conscious than they used to be, and some of that's good makes you more strategic about what you choose to put in a story, um, but then we're just at the same time seeing this explosion of online opportunities I think we could all take advantage of that Well, I really appreciate you taking time to talk with me 